Welcome to the 12th episode of the Anxious Poets podcast. Happy New Year, happy new decade. I'm the anxious poet, Adrian Scott, and in this episode I want to forage into, to wrestle with, to uh, make a journey around the twin phenomena in the human psyche and the human experience of vulnerability and resilience. I'm going to begin with a poem that I wrote that had an element of prescience about it in twenty about 2010. It's called Keelhauled. comes from my experience of watching um, pirate films when I was a boy and at some point some reprobate, some problematic pirate would be sentenced by the captain with his um, eye patch and one leg to uh, to being keelhauled, and it stuck in my mind as something absolutely terrifying. To be, as Wikipedia puts it, the sailor was tied to a rope that looped beneath the vessel, thrown overboard on one side of the ship and dragged under the ship's keel to the other side. Keelhauled. If you haven't been keelhauled by life, then you're not living. You've been getting the message all your life, the ascent of spring, the long dark of winter. Yet for many, it's hidden in plain sight. Your ordinary life is a drama, wearing the masks you see at the theatre, weeping and laughing, exits and entrances, tragedy and comedy. Then there is the hot leap of love, and the blunt fact of death. The key is to remain in touch with your soul, and by soul I mean the sense that you're here for a reason, that you're meant to be alive, that there is a you, a riverbed to the daily flood, that just is. So, as you walk past the shop windows, mirroring glimpses of your true defeats, welcome their hunger to be recast into your life, to make of you a human. So as you walk past the shop windows, mirroring glimpses of your true defeats, welcome their hunger to be recast into your life, to make of you a human. Little did I know, when I wrote that poem, that I would really be keelhauled. Can't even say it. Um, that was 2010. In 2014, I had a, a a a powerful experience of anxiety, of being dragged under the water, of my unconscious, um, and and pulled on the barnacle-bottomed hull of my own life experience, and it took quite a long time to come up the other side. And since then I've had uh, recurring anxiety, recurring generalised anxiety disorder um, and and smaller experiences of, of being pulled under the boat. I was fortunate enough at the time that that, that happened in 2014 to have just started Jungian analysis sounds very grand um, 
I'd been attending a thing called the Guild of Pastoral Psychotherapy in Sheffield, um, which Jung set up these little study groups to look at the the phenomena that he was exploring, uh, and they've continued by looking at the the voluminous output that Jung um, engaged in, including a thing called the Red Book, which is a, an incredible uh, piece of writing that, that Jung engaged in. It's how he discovered all the things he discovered in many ways by by working on himself and his own dreams and reflecting on his patients and their dreams. And this, this book is an incredible... Uh, it's, a, it's a work of art. There, there are mandalas that he drew these, these, these drew these, um, these incredible uh, explorations of symbolism in a geometric form. But there's also other uh, um, drawings of his dreams, and it's all done in this high Gothic script. And he's recounting his his keel hauling, his experience of 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 going deeply into his own unconscious. And what he finds there, and and he is, I've said in a poem somewhere, the topographer, the cartographer, sorry, of the soul. Uh, by soul, I mean the Greek word psyche um, means soul. In other words, our inner world, our inner landscape, and um, that's often the place where where our traumas and, and, and the things that we don't want to look at and the experiences that we have that scar and wound us are buried. And uh, as the Franciscan friar Richard Rohr, writer on spirituality, says, you know, just because they've gone away from your conscious mind doesn't mean they've gone away. There's no such place as nowhere in the spiritual or the psychological world. And, I, I, and I'm rattling on about all this because I think those experiences of being keel-hauled by life, and I, I think they're what make us a human being. That, that was my instinct. If you haven't been keel-hauled by life, then you're not living. Um, I, I'm not saying that we should all rush out. Uh, like when, when I uh, tried to live religious life in my 20s, you know, I used to um, engage in fasting and getting up in the middle of the night to pray and things like that to 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 um to be ascetical and um uh, um that that catholic notion of of deprivation uh so i don't think we should all go running out looking for this because believe me it comes and finds you anyway um if you've not been keelhauled by life then you're not living you've been getting the message all your life and and by that i mean the very uh, activity of the seasons, if we follow them carefully, certainly uh, in the UK we get them. You know, the long dark of winter, it's a keel hauling of its own. Um, but, but yet for many I say it's hidden in plain sight. It's not something that, that people tend to look at in our society at the moment. That There's no... There's no real narrative a lot of the time, except in film or poetry or literature, of this this cyclical nature of our lives and the fact that, that life keelhauls us. 
Um, and that that is natural. It's part of the human experience. It's a necessary part of our human journey on this planet. Yet for many it's hidden in plain sight. Your ordinary life is a drama wearing the mask you see at the theatre. I've always been struck by those masks when I go to see a play. In more traditional theatres, the, the laughing face and the weeping face. Again, they're that, that dance between tragedy and comedy. Then there is the hot leap of love and the blunt fact of death. So I think those two things are keel-hauling experiences. Falling in love, the cost of love, is, is infinite. If, if we really choose to love, we also choose to grieve. We choose to be hurt, we choose to be wounded. You know, I've had dogs, um, two of my dogs have just been a bit ill, but I lost my lovely Gabriel um, recently, my 14-year-old Border Collie, and, and it's heart-wrenching, and I still miss him every day. I miss him terribly. And, and it is that feeling of being dragged under an experience. Um, the key is to remain in touch with your soul, and by soul, I mean the sense that you're here for a reason, that you are meant to be alive. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a trite way, that, you know, oh... <laughs> people sometimes say oh well it's all meant um that was meant to happen and there's a there's a kind of easy sense of providence and whether you believe in anything or nothing this this feeling somehow that we are on a journey through our lives and it has meaning i think is is fairly essential to to having a fully human life that that in some way i matter i'm important i have meaning in my life and however we find that however we search for that however we construct that that there is a you a riverbed to the daily flood that just is i've struggled to find this at times and, and that's part of my own vulnerability and that's what I want to move into exploring now. To, to, to really find that sense of there's a part of me that just is. Jung referred to it as the self with a capital S or sometimes the soul. The essential part of us that I was certainly aware of even when I was deeply, deeply anxious that there was a part of me that was okay. Okay is a very silly word for it, really. That was essential, that, that somehow wasn't really being buffeted in the way that, that more of my conscious self was being buffeted. And that one of the things that really helped, I discovered this guy called Charles Linden, one of these kind of gurus that tells you you know, I can solve your anxiety. For me, what he actually did was make me realise it was just anxiety. But he also had really good relaxation um, talks, um, meditations that you could listen to in your headphones. And I would listen to them when I woke up feeling just 
absolute terror of the day or, or when I was going to sleep. And, and they were like full body um, uh, relaxations, relaxing your toes, relaxing the tops of your feet, the soles of your feet. And it did actually have quite an effect doing that every day. Um, what didn't help at first was trying to be silent because that just gave my mind that was in overdrive anyway a chance to really go for it so meditations where somebody was talking to you and helping you work into that deeper cushion if you like of your deeper self was really helpful um and and that there was a sense that there is this riverbed that is just okay so as you walk past the shop windows mirroring glimpses of your true defeats, when I was younger, um, if I got a new pair of jeans or my new Afghan coat when I was in my teenage years, whatever, I remember walking past shop windows and you catch a glimpse of yourself and think, oh, oh God, that... And, and quite often it, was, oh, it wasn't quite as cool as I thought it would. Um, but but there, was, there was that appraisal of oneself that you do in shop windows. And I imagined in this poem that they actually were mirroring glimpses of my true defeats. To be truly defeated is to be vulnerable. Or rather, to be truly defeated introduces you to your vulnerabilities. When you hit those moments in life where it just doesn't work anymore, where you come to the end of yourself, the end of what people call the end of your tether, um, for whatever reason, that phase of your life is over. Um, that homecoming has led to an eviction and you are now uncertain. What, what a lot of people call in a liminal place, the threshold between one uh, part of your life and another and and these can be mediated by all sorts of experiences sometimes just a deep sense of unease or a sudden onset of anxiety and our mental health and our, our kind of when I was younger people said oh he's very he's, he's bad with his nerves or or she's very nervy I, I think that our mental health is is like a bellwether sometimes of where we are in our lives and and it's it's ignored at our peril and it is that upsurge that uprising of deeper unconscious uh, movements parts of ourselves um, when I wrote a night sea journey I used little quotations from this amazing book called The Sun God's Journey Through the Netherworld by Andreas Schweitzer, who's a Jungian, a Jungian writer. And, and it's a, he's fascinated by Egyptian mythology and, it, and he, he's focusing on rather Sun God's journey that was highly mythologized in, in Egypt um, that, that he would, would go under the horizon 
and be keelhauled through the dark night and he was dismembered and then put back together and he was he witnessed the charnel houses of 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 the underworld and and here here are some of the things that i quoted though we ourselves can never know in which direction someone's development ought to go that person's dreams know it this was the great insight of jung and it's been a revelation to me to listen deeply to my own dreams uh, and and i'll say a little bit more about that in a minute uh your dreams know where you're going in a way that you don't because your dreams are coming from that place where you've pushed a lot of that stuff but also where your deepest self resides the the kind of captain of the ship if you like and it's not your ego <laughs> and that's really important to grasp the bit of us that plans and and tries to uh, feels like it should be in charge and when people say i just don't feel in control anymore or i want to be in control or can i'm a control freak that's the the ego the i that that is um often unaware until midlife that there is something deeper but is dethroned uh, unseated by this deeper self that rises up that that is where all the deep intimations of our lives come from. Um, so th this uh, great insight of, um, of Andreas Schweitzer about these movements, painful though it might be, this dismemberment is inevitable for it necessarily precedes the union and regeneration, complete dissolution precedes complete renewal vulnerability opens us to that dissolution it opens us to uh, that huge discomfort and 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 feeling of of being out of control he says this if we are sometimes filled with and beset by profound existential angst or afflicted with the torment of depression, such an experience can intimate that even now, beneath the threshold of consciousness, the germ of a psychic content is struggling to emerge from the collective unconscious to cause a decisive change in our lives. There is no reason to be ashamed of such anxiety or depression. Quite the contrary, someone who never knows such anxiety is most likely cut off from the deeper levels of his or her soul. It is only natural to fear the darker aspects of the self. Wow. It's only natural to fear the darker aspects of the self. We are incredibly vulnerable as we develop our childhood and our adolescence is full of a necessary but difficult vulnerability. We're inexperienced. We don't know what's going on around us. We are um, prey to or, or just vulnerable to the family that we're born into, to the to the schools that we attend, to the work that we do, to all the, the difficulties of life, 
wh- whoever we are, wherever we're born. And uh, I think that that it's those moments of vulnerability that create huge turbulence in us and how we react to them how we react to them is crucial in in who we become and then often crucial in a journey of of somehow acceptance and reconciliation with what that vulnerability led to and a willingness to become vulnerable again and a and a and a need to learn how to frame our vulnerability in a way that we gain resilience from it rather than run away from it or hide from it. In the middle of my uh, of my breakdown, I wrote this poem uh, describing what it was like when it first started. It's called All at Sea. It's in a night sea journey. And it starts with a a quote from Jung. The night sea journey is a kind of descensus ad emphiros, a descent into Hades, and a journey to the land of ghosts somewhere beyond this world, beyond consciousness, hence an immersion into the unconscious. You don't get told that much when uh, when you go to the doctor and say that you're suffering from anxiety or depression. Oh, okay. Well, you're on, in, on the way to the land of ghosts now, somewhere beyond this world. Um, good luck. And um, you're going to have an immersion in the unconscious. And so we'll be looking after you while you do that. Wouldn't it be great? <laughs> You'd probably be struck off. But um, that, that was what helped me reframe what at first I just took to be this this horrible mental health issue give me some tablets get rid of it and thankfully I just started the Jungian therapy don't have a problem with tablets at all but she was able to say to me you may well not need them this could be something if you can traverse it if you can take the keel hauling then then uh, you will become who you are who you need to be So this is all at sea. Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea, not knowing what course to steer? The bath I ran was full of fear, its water full of cortisol and adrenaline, just at the prospect of having to leave the house. My wife thought getting out would do me good, just to drive into the Peak District, familiar and non-threatening roads to soothe me. It didn't work. Iciness down the spinal cord, dread like a wasp's nest inside my guts, angrily contorted by each turn, spilling stingers. Stop off at a garden centre, she suggests. Everything in me wants to brutally scream, Get me home! But there is no relief. In that, the cake is like cloying dust in my mouth. The tea, tasteless, it furs my tongue with lactose. I endure the leather settee, the Sunday supplement. Back in the car, I feel an abnormal sense of achievement, 
but it's not incremental, not another deposit in the bank of conquered panic. It seems every time I make another attempt at some agoraphobic summit bid, I am right back at base camp. The only thing, the only thing I can find faith in is that it is night and that the stars are a constant and when the storm clears, I might find steerage. The only thing I can find faith in is that it is night. It's night and the stars are a constant and when the storm clears, I might, I might find steerage. I had CBT when I first uh, had the, 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 the onset of generalised anxiety disorder. It was a bit like first aid, really. I, I, I don't think it's a long-term solution, but I think it's, um, I think it's, it's like first aid. And um, they encouraged me to... Exp- I was very agoraphobic. And when my anxiety is bad, things like cinemas, theatres, um, any enclosed spaces, restaurants, I'm always anxious about going to them. And they advocated this kind of gradual exposure to do it more and more and then you'll feel better. My experience of of that is that's not actually true for me. If I'm in a storm, I can do it every day, I could do it every 20 minutes and I'd still feel exactly the same way. It takes a longer time for the storm to abate. Um I still do those things. I still, um, you know, I, I, I still go and and endure those feelings. Um, but that idea that the faith is that it is night and the stars are a constant is another reference, I think, to something deeper within me that I trust is at work, that this is all part of a deeper journey and that some content from the unconscious has stirred up and is bringing another part of me to life and that I'm going to be introduced to that and I can trust it and therefore endure some of that feeling of being all at sea. Um, This idea then of vulnerability... Uh, you know, I hear people talk about it a lot. There's great stuff with the with the American um, sociologist and and researcher Brené Brown, and she tells great stories within her uh, her quantitative research to a certain extent about vulnerability. Um, there's great qualitative uh, information in what she has to say, and and from her own experiences, and and she makes herself vulnerable. She, she models what she's talking about. My experience of vulnerability is, is that it's so uncomfortable. And, and it's not something you necessarily get that used to. But you learn that those discomforts and those terrors of vulnerability are worth enduring worth plummeting into sometimes that the keel hauling is worth it 
I mean, one of the things that keelholing did was strip off the top layer of your skin because the keel of the ship was covered in barnacles. And that, though that's a, a, a bit of a gruesome metaphor, I think, you know, we have that, that uh, saying about someone who is very thick-skinned. You need to be very thick-skinned to be in politics. You need to be very thick-skinned to be a manager. You need to be very thick-skinned to, uh, to survive in this world. Not so sure about that. Uh, I think thick skinness, yeah, okay, sometimes you have to have a certain implacability, a certain um, courage to not listen to the to the, the 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 voices around you that are disparaging or the hurtful stuff, the Twitter storm. But. To become thick-skinned, to become insensitive, I actually think is pretty dangerous. Um, and that, you know, someone in a, in, a, in one of the guild meetings the other night said, um, you know, I think the internet is the nervous system of humanity. Uh, and <laughs> if that's true, there's large parts of it that are in, in uh, nervous breakdown. But it, it's kind of revealing a lot of our dark side, the way people speak to each other on, on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. But also our vulnerabilities, you know, uh, we are exploring in the wild west of the internet a lot of brokenness and people trying to look at what the vulnerability of human life is all about. In my opinion, what we're looking for is not thick skinness, it's resilience. It's the ability to pay deep attention to what's going on inside me, to the inner voice. In, in the poem um, uh, that I wrote, and, and have used with groups a lot um, about about this phenomenon uh, called when will you be ready? When will you be ready to hear the voice that's been speaking to you with a patient kindness for some time now, like birdsong when you wake? Don't mistake its kindness for weakness or insignificance. It is neither. Moreover, the voice is your most ardent, though from a place you have not often had the courage to visit. Trajectories are strange, they have an inertia, a momentum they make you, that makes you think they must be right, they are the way. Yet often, they're just a form of sleepwalking. I was once told of an alpine photographer who, in order to get the clearest views on his Hasselblad camera, would switch off the engine and glide, thus minimising the blur. Only when you cut the motor will vision find you. Only when you're ready to attend will your soul's map unfold. Only then will the path you took make sense and the way ahead appear out of the mist. What breeds, grows, cultures resilience is listening to that voice. When will you be ready 
to listen to the voice that's been speaking to you for some time now with a patient kindness, like birdsong when you wake. Because this voice, this voice is not angry or dominant or, or um, bullying. It's quiet. But don't mistake its quietness for weakness or insignificance. It is neither. Moreover, it is your most ardent, though from a place you have not often had the courage to visit. Because that voice, that deep voice, will tell you the truth about yourself. Not the, the huge fluctuations of inflation and deflation that most of us go through. That, that you know, the, the capricious ego says, <clears throat> oh, I'm just shit at that, I'm crap at that, can't do that anymore, I'm not doing it. Or, or tells us, you know, that we're better than we, than, than, than we really are that inflates us when somebody says something good we suddenly think we're invulnerable and we go charging into something and i'm going to do this now you know what i'm talking about you feel those inflations and deflations of life that most ardent voice will tell you actually you're not terrible you're just okay and and if you worked at that and if you really went into it it could become the thing that you do next. But you're not that good at it yet. Or um, it will say to you, you've gone running down this path because trajectories are strange, they have a momentum that make you think they're right, but sometimes they're just a form of sleepwalking. Sometimes they are. Sometimes you sleepwalk because everyone's telling you that's what, what you know oh yes yeah that's great it's great keep doing that um or your your the the world you live in keeps asking from that from you and you just think oh I should, yeah, that's what i should keep doing whereas that ardent voice is saying hang on and and that ardent voice in me because i ignored it for a long time that's when you, your resilience breaks down and and the unconscious has to somehow whack you around the head so although it's 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 quiet like birdsong if you ignore it for too long it it's it's as if the unconscious just trips you over and and just knocks off that balance that 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 you think you're so good at at culturing and, and produces some kind of reaction that will deflate you and and put you in a in a liminal place where you're vulnerable and where you need to listen. I said I'd say a bit more about dreams and, and I think dreams are where we're vulnerable to our unconscious. We're vulnerable to what what Jung called the collective unconscious. We're, we're vulnerable in a good way. We have no defences. And the more we listen, because that's part of the ardent voice, the more we listen to them and take the, what the symbols of our dreams are teaching us and, and make companions of those symbols because they're realities, they're deep-seated realities in the human unconscious, then we become more 
what Jung would call integrated, what I would call just human. It will make of you a human. I did some work down in London um, with uh, for a good friend of mine who works for an insurance company. Um, he's part of their corporate social responsibility. And um, we did some work around poetry and... Um, around vulnerability and resilience with him and his team. And I went down to do some one-to-one conversations right in the centre of the city of London. Um, I'd not been there for a long time, and I was overwhelmed by how big and shiny everything is now. The gherkin and the shard and that building that looks like a weird mobile phone. And I was right in the middle of all that. And, And we were staying near where we used to live in Brick Lane, and one of the things I noticed, because I walked from there to do the work, uh, to do the meetings, into the city. So it was about a mile and a half. I saw one tree in all of that walk. One piece of greenness. It was it was astonishing. I live in a green valley that I walk in every day. And it was just such a powerful contrast. This one tree. And... It gives this impression of human invulnerability, all of this shiny glass and concrete and and, and impressive gargantuan buildings. And, and we were exploring in the, the, the conversations we were having this idea of vulnerability and resilience. And I, I started talking about when I'm in the Lake District with David White in the summer, we're at this wonderful place called Bank Ground Farm. Those of you who listen to this podcast that have been there, um, will immediately start smiling. Um, it's beautiful. It's on the banks of Coniston. It's where Arthur Ransom is meant to have written Swallows and Amazons. And in the eaves of Bankground Farm, th- they're full of martins, house martins, that come there every year and make their home in the eaves. And when 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 we're sitting out, uh, looking out over the lake, having tea and coffee and chatting they come shooting over your head into their little nests. And especially in the twilight when they're hovering around um, catching insects to, to, to feed themselves. And, you know, I think once, I can't remember, I'm pretty sure once one hit a window or something and stunned itself. Um, if you go to pick them up, they're light as a feather, literally, and uh, like balsa wood. And they are delicate, vulnerable little creatures, and yet they fly to Africa every year. It's just incredible. And and I was thinking, they carry their vulnerability, their little feathered vulnerability, in 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 an amazing way. And they feed off off all these insects and create a resilience in themselves that then allows them to fly all that way and then come back and re repopulate their flocks um, by breeding in the Lake District. So I wrote this poem called Martins in the Eaves and I dedicate it to the people that go on David's thing to um, David's walking tour to the lakes. Martins in the Eaves. This spitfire barrel roll over our heads, 
to their hidden mud-packed garrets in the eaves of bank-ground farm by Coniston's water. This welter of bullet-speeded feathered bodies sweeping through the twilight lower airs, plucking at the flotsam pillows of flies. This constancy of summer sorties streaming into the gloaming, glimmering like brushstrokes or light flecks on stippled seas. This audibility in domed pebble-dash homes, softening the oncoming dark with the hushed chitters of their nightfall nattering. This brilliant bird-bodied flock, hajj-makers, pilgrims from Africa, here to promulgate themselves into the next migratory iteration. This richness of Martins, an embodiment of resilient vulnerability. Balsa-like frames whose featheredness can traverse continents. This making of mud-gobbed speakeasies to course out from, breasting the wind's anxiety with a heart full of flight's famine for all to see. This takenness we feel with their easy speed, our yearning dreams of flighted raids into the tender realms of our primeval empathies. This takenness we feel with their easy speed, our yearning dreams of flighted raids into the tender realms of our primeval empathies. The collective noun for Martins is a richness of Martins, an embodiment of resilient vulnerability. There's a lot in that poem uh, about the things that I experience when, when, when seeing them and feeling them and hearing them. And I've, I've started each stanza with this because one of the things that I feel from them is thisness. They're right here, right now, whoosh, straight over your head. And if you're not right here, right now, you'll miss them. And also the mud-gobbed speakeasies, you can hear them in there, chittering and nattering to themselves. There's a communal uh, aspect to these birds. They create a colony. They, they speak to us of the need for shared vulnerability. And we, their easy speed that spitfire barrel roll over our head and our yearning dreams. Most people I know at some point in their lives have had a dream of flying and, and when, when they talk about it, they look up and, and you can feel the yearning of flighted raids into the tender realms of our primeval empathies. And by that, I mean, I don't think it's, it's dominance or control or... or working harder or trying more that makes will make the world a better place it's our primeval empathies our ability to feel to experience grief and happiness joy and terror that's what will make us save the planet that's what will make us change the way we live it, it's not laws, 
it's 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 the primeval law of empathy we are naturally empathetic i think we feel with each other and we feel with it's i i've i've just tried being vegetarian for the month of january and it, i felt better partly because if i think too hard about the industry that that brings meat to my table i, f- I don't feel good I'm not saying that I'm never going to eat meat again. I just don't feel okay. And that's what I mean by primeval empathy. That that the more we get in touch with how we feel, and on another podcast I've explored St. Francis, he had deep contact with his primeval empathy. And he made flighted raids into it all the time. He felt deeply everything around him. He would move snails and worms off the road so they didn't get trodden on. And it wasn't a a, a sentimentality. It wasn't, oh, poor little things. And it wasn't even an anthropomorphism, making of uh, animals and the natural world like people. You see that some people with dogs, they, they, they treat them like little babies and you carry them around in bags. And it's, it's not that. It's letting the wild be wild. It's letting them be who they are and feeling that deep primeval connection we have. I remember once doing a 24-hour a, a a thing out on my own in a, with a tarpaulin in um, Arizona, a place called um, Aravipa Canyon, aptly named for, for, for someone like me. We were given this leaflet when we went, uh, before we were sent out with our tarpaulin and, and nothing else to fast and, and to be out in this wilderness. Uh, we were in this little booklet, and it, it it just enumerated all the things that could hurt you, and and to most of you who are from the United States, didn't seem to bother you lot, um, but you know I'd never come across Gila monsters, uh, tarantulas that someone said, oh, it'd be a bit like a wasping if they bite you, um, but watch out for the scorpions in your shoes because they will hurt you. Oh, and the rattlesnakes, yeah, the rattlesnakes are pretty bad. Um, and then, and towards the end, oh, mountain lions, yeah, yeah, look out for where they might live. And and then right at the, at the end of this booklet, it said, and remember, wild bears wander the rim of the canyon. <laughs> and it was like, okay, so if you think you're going to escape, the bears will get you just as you got to the rim of the canyon. Um, and And I was really slightly unnerved to say the least by all of this um we don't get many of those things in england um and and someone said to me you need to think like an animal because you are one deep in your dna somewhere you have all those survival instincts that that make you able to exist in a place like that and that's the primeval empathies you need to get in touch with and 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 that you, you know there's a that, this idea we are animals that's where that primeval empathy comes from um it's where our survival instincts come from too um and our resilience 
our resilience comes from there too. So the Martins in the Eve speak to me deeply of this resilient vulnerability. Balsa-like frames whose featheredness can traverse continents. And so the invitation of this podcast really is to explore where do I feel that deep vulnerability? Where am I at the edge of myself? Which is quite scary. Where am I um, in pain or um, grieving? Is there joy in my life? And if not, where's it gone and why? All those vulnerabilities, where in my relationships am I not connecting? Or where am I yearning? All of those vulnerabilities, those tender nerve endings that thick skinness covers over, that's the vulnerability that's so worth exploring. What makes you resilient when you're in those vulnerabilities? It's little things. So one of the things that we were exploring in these conversations that I was having down in uh, in London was uh, years ago I read this book, Seven Habits of, of Highly Efficient People by Stephen Covey. The only thing I remember, maybe, I don't know, it's the only good thing in the book, but um, it stuck with me, was that he makes this point that in our lives, there's a huge difference between what's important and what's urgent. So a ringing phone sounds urgent, but is often not important. So many things in the modern world, you've probably heard my email dinging to tell me there's another email come in, or there'll be a ping for a WhatsApp or an Instagram post, or a Facebook notification, or a Twitter tweet. Um, they sound urgent. Um, there's a lot of things that people make urgent. Oh, you must see this. You have to do that. You, you, you know, advertising works on the urgency of, 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 of exploiting our vulnerabilities. You know, you are not fully you without this product. What he makes the point is important things often don't sound urgent. So the importance maybe of walking every day, the importance of listening to some beautiful music every day or watching a film that deeply moves you or being silent in some way or of eating well or of having a long, relaxing bath, or doing a relaxation exercise when you wake up terrified, or of having a loving conversation with someone that you've not spoken to for a long time, or holding someone's hand. Or I just did a funeral for a really lovely person that I never met, um, a friend from when I was in a men's group asked me to do his mother-in-law's funeral. Carol 
with an E, she was called. And uh, her, her daughter, his wife, gave me a book that, that she'd given to her. It's called From You to Me. So the daughter had given the mother this book. And it, it's a journal with headings in things like, where did you first fall? Uh, how did you first fall in love? Um, what was your childhood like? What were your parents like? What do you remember? Uh, what was your first memory? Um, what would be your epitaph? And this lovely woman, Carol, who died recently in her 80s, had filled this whole book in and given it back to her daughter. And it was just, she asked if I would speak from that. And it was so, so poignant and so beautiful and so clear to me that, that, that Carol, with an E, had paid attention to her vulnerabilities and cultured a life of resilience she'd only lived in two houses in her whole life from what i could work out both in sheffield one over the road from the other she'd lost two partners uh, who died but she said i have fulfilled my ambitions and she had terrible losses but she she accommodated them put her arms around them and was was prepared to live from them. That was very apparent to me, and I feel very honoured that I was asked to do that. Uh, and I'm very grateful to Amanda and um, and to Tom for asking me to do that. And it takes me towards the conclusion of this podcast. Our vulnerability comes from our ordinariness. And our resilience comes from that same place. It's, it's not a bad thing to pay attention to the ordinary uh, facets of your life. In fact, it's a really important thing. It's where we find the truth of who we are. This final piece that I want to read to conclude is at the end of, of my second book, Arriving in Magic. And it's funny, I wrote that. I felt I'd arrived in a magical place. And within a year and a half, I was in the teeth of a breakdown. But I think appreciating the magical place that I'd come to, which was a deep appreciation of my ordinariness, created the resilience to help me through the keel hauling. So this poem is called There is a Certain Kind of Vow. Dedicate it to Carol and to Tom and Amanda and to the people um, that I was working with in London and, and to everyone who's prepared to make this vow. There is a certain kind of vow you can only make after writing an autobiography. Not to sell your image like celebrities do, but chiselled with grinding honesty. You do not have to publish, just be readable. Tell your story. You do not even have to write it, just speak it out loud. Voice yourself in a plain and simple admission. Then when you have it down, courageously recount it to someone else. Not just anybody but one who has earned the rights to your defencelessness. 
not just anybody, but one who has earned the rights to your defenselessness. When you have risked this step, then comes the avowal, the profession. St. Francis, we are told, made a profession of poverty. Before the bishop and his father, he renounced his clothes, going barefoot into that fierce world of danger and nature outside the city. Yours too will be a self-sealed willingness to hazard yourself. Adventure into the grindstone of reality. Francis called it poverty, and then it was institutionalised, neutered. I think we would call it vulnerability. To take only that which you found in your story and walk out beyond your city wall. There is a certain kind of vow that no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. There is a certain kind of vow that no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. St Francis, uh, who I've talked about before, he is an icon of vulnerability for me. I'm just looking at his lovely olive wood statue that my wife brought me back from Assisi. He's, he, he discovers after being... Uh, traumatised in a war that what he wants to do is live as simply as possible as ordinarily as possible and he has this confrontation with the bishop and his father where he's given away some of his father's cloth and his father goes crazy and demands justice and Francis strips naked gives him back his clothes and walks out of the city and begins to live beyond the confines of the city which was a really dangerous thing to do in Francis's time and he rebuilds this little chapel. He renounced his clothes, going barefoot into that fierce world of danger and nature outside the city. Yours too will be a willingness, a self-sealed willingness, to hazard yourself, adventure into the grindstone of reality. It's another image for that keel-hauling, to be prepared to be keel-hauled. Where I live is where, in on the moors, there's stuff called um, millstone grit, and they made big grinding wheels with it, rolled them down and used water to power the mills. And it ground steel, it ground corn, um, ground all sorts. It's very abrasive. To hazard yourself, adventure into the grindstone of reality. Francis called it poverty, but it was institutionalised, just like everything is. We would call it vulnerability. So, I wish you well in the grindstone of reality. I'll read to finish this piece again. There is a certain kind of vow you can only make after writing an autobiography, which is what Carol, with an E, Carol did. There is a certain kind of vow you can only make after writing an autobiography, not to sell your image like celebrities do, but chiselled with grinding honesty. You do not have to publish, just be readable, tell your story. You do not even have to write it, just speak it out loud. Voice yourself in a plain, simple admission. Then, when you have it down, courageously recount it to someone else. Not just anybody, but one who's earned the rights to your defencelessness. 
When you've risked this step, then comes the avowal, the profession. St. Francis, we are told, made a profession of poverty before the bishop and his father. He renounced his clothes, going barefoot into that fierce world of danger and nature outside the city. Yours, too, will be a self-sealed willingness to hazard yourself, adventure into the grindstone of reality. Francis called it poverty, and then it was institutionalised, neutered. I think we would call it vulnerability to take only that which you have found in your story and walk out beyond your city wall there is a certain kind of vow that no one can make for you it is the vow of vulnerability <laughs>